I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis 31 this morning. <clears throat> well, the book of Genesis is divided up into uh, all of these different uh, sections focusing on uh, the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel. I really enjoyed studying the Abraham stories as a large section of Genesis, and I didn't know what I would think about the Jacob story. The Jacob story that we started uh, several weeks ago now uh, has been both frustrating and a blessing to me. Uh, uh, frustrating in that, you know, I think what a conniver and sinister uh, man, uh, but a blessing in that my heart has been encouraged by the fact that God uses sinful men and sinful women, and uh, that means I qualify. Uh, he can use me as well. So over the last several sermons, we've been looking at the, the Jacob story. The early stories of Jacob were not too promising, if you remember. Uh, Jacob's life starts out a mess when he and his twin are bashing each other while they're still in the womb. Then Jacob swindles his brother out of a birthright, deceives his elderly handicapped father, and steals his brother's blessing. Having made a mess out of everything in these early stories, Jacob flees for his life from Esau. And the second set of stories begin. The second set of stories I call the Laban Chronicles. And the Laban Chronicles are filled with blessing on Jacob. He receives four wives, 12 children, and multitudes of sheep, oxen, and camels, and other measures of wealth. And all of this comes despite the constant miserly actions of his uncle Laban. Well, today the Laban Chronicles are going to end in the same way that the early stories ended with Jacob fleeing for his life, this time not from Esau, but from Laban, his uncle. Do you know someone who can't seem to last very long in any one job or location because they seem to be always stirring up trouble? Do you know anyone like this? Of course, it's not us, but. They find themselves in uh, relational tension after relational tension after relational tension. Seems to follow them along. He or she might even wonder, why does this always happen to me? Why me? Why do people always treat me like this? And you think in your heart, well, it's obvious. <laughs> What's the common denominator? Let me do a little math with you here. What's the common denominator in every workplace or location you've ever lived? The common denominator is you. It's you. And you pray for the opportunity that you'll be able to speak this with love and that they'll be ready to hear you because you love them. Well, that's Jacob. It's been 20 years now in Padan Aram, and it's amazing that things haven't completely unraveled well before this. But today we're going to look at him fleeing for his life. I tell this final episode in four parts. I'll try to emphasize them for you as we read through here. 
It all starts with, part number one, the conversation in verses 1 through 16. The conversation that occurs in the first few verses of this chapter is about departure. It's about leaving. And in the first three verses, Moses mentions several reasons why Jacob feels that he must leave. Uh, Look down in your Bible, verse 1. Then Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Here, Jacob has many reasons to flee. There are three of them. I count one per verse. It's pretty simple as Moses lays it out. And so first, in the first verse, we learn that he heard something. He heard that Laban's sons were angry and were blaming him for stealing his father's wealth. Then in verse 2, he sees something. He saw something. He saw something in the countenance of Laban himself that was telling to him. Laban did not look upon him with grace anymore. And then finally in verse 3, God spoke to Laban to make it clear that it was time for him to leave. I'm sure that Jacob struggled with thoughts of returning back to his father's land because Esau was still there waiting for him. But God makes it clear that time is, it's time to go. Knowing when to leave is sometimes challenging for us, whether it's someone's home you know, as an invited guest or it's your workplace or a location But in this case, it's very clear God revealed himself to him and said, it's time to go. You go now, and I will be with you. So it's clear for Jacob, but the question becomes, how will Jacob's wives respond? Okay, that's what we find in verses 4 through 16. So look down at verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock were spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flocks were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to you. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion of the inheritance left for us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. 
All the wealth that God has taken away from our Father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. I like how one commentator describes the scene here. He said, uh, discreetly in the countryside, out of earshot of other members of the household, Jacob fills them in. The rest of this paragraph, then, is a, is a dialogue between Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. Jacob starts out here, and he uh, can see that Rachel and Leah's father no longer regard him favorably. And so throughout his dialogue with Rachel and Leah, he does not call Laban by name. I found that very interesting. He keeps referring to him as your father. Okay, But what is even more remarkable to me is the way he not only talks about your father, but he sets him up in contrast to someone. Your father has done such and such and such and such and such and such, as opposed to God. And so it seems as if Laban, or, um, sorry, Jacob is setting up this choice for Rachel and Leah. Will you be loyal to your father or God? Although their father no longer likes him and has been working against him all these years, God has always been blessing Jacob. And although Jacob has worked hard for Laban and Laban cheated him and changed his wages, God did not allow Laban to harm him. And so Jacob wants these women to, to make a choice between Laban and God. Now the word translated cheated in verse 7 is a word that I prefer to be translated a little differently. I, I translate it mocked. This is a rare word that's used just a few times in the Bible. And of the few times it's used, it's used repeatedly in the Samson and Delilah story. Maybe you remember that story where she's trying to trick him to find out the source of his true strength, and he keeps giving her wrong answers. And she performs on those answers and does nothing to his strength. And so she says, why do you consistently, and instead of cheat, I translate it there, mock. Why are you mocking me? And so with this word, I think Jacob feels that he has been mocked by Laban and those around him. I mean, can you imagine Laban and his sons mocking Jacob when they initially take out all the spotted and speckled cattle at the very beginning, or, or livestock? <laughs> we got him. All that's left are purebred. He'll never get anything. Mocking him. Or perhaps you can imagine the servants and friends of Laban mocking him when he comes out of the wedding tent with the wrong wife. <laughs> Did you see him? Did you see that look on his face? You see how angry he was? He's been the source of mockery. Jacob also complains that his wages have been changed ten times, which is just a phrase I think that means again and again and again. Yet he also proclaims to his wives in this field that God was blessing him all throughout it, taking Laban's wealth and giving it to him. And he explains to Rachel and Leah out in this field that God has also appeared to him and revealed to him that it was now time for him to return to his father's homeland. 
That's when we find the response of Rachel and Leah in verses 14 through 16 that we've already read. You know, will they be loyal? Will they go with him or will they be loyal to their father? And it becomes obvious that, that they are not going to stay with their miserly father. And they add two reasons here why, or they explain two reasons why in verse 15. First, they proclaim, they say, for he has sold us. It seems to me that they've grown bitter about how their father has treated them. He's treated his two daughters as merchandise to be sold. He sold them for 14 years of hard labor from a man. See, I think that they've lost respect for the old man because he treated them like livestock or cattle. And then they add to this at the end of verse 15, that Laban has devoured their money. You see that in the text? Their money. That was intriguing to me this, this week as I was trying to figure out this text. What do they mean when they say he's devoured their money? Well, perhaps they understand that they'll get no inheritance now because Laban has sons and they'll get whatever he has. Or maybe, and I think perhaps better, they're embittered because nothing exists of the dowry that Jacob had given to Laban in his 14 years of service. You see, in these ancient cultures, sometimes a piece of the dowry would be reserved for the brides to give them a good financial basis for their future. Regardless, though, for Rachel and Leah, they get nothing. Laban has spent it all on himself, so they say that they will join Jacob and do whatever Jacob's God tells him to do. That's what I call, number one, the conversation. Okay? And it leads to part two, the chase. Okay, so it's going to pick up here. Uh, look at me, verses 17 through 21, where it starts with their flight. Verse 17, so Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. All right, so this second part, the chase, starts with the flight of Jacob and his family. You've heard of the phrase, being on the run, before. Um, this is like that, um, although I'd call this like being on the slow crawl uh, with camels. Okay, camels are not known for their speed. And there's a lot of children and wives and slaves and livestock and, and everything as they're trying to get away. Jacob does, however, pick a good time to leave. He chooses a time of shearing of sheep, which would be a time when, when all of Laban and his men would be out in the field busy from dawn to dusk working on this, distracted, away from the camp. And so the text says that they get a three-day head start here. It's, it's during this time that they flee away. Yet there is one other important little note in the text that will become even more important as we go along, and that is the phrase that says that Rachel took the household gods of Laban. That is, she stole them. Now, if you were doing study in this text and you started looking in commentaries and 
scholars and what they say here. There's a lot of debate about the size and the shape and the function of these household gods. I mean, there's just a lot written on this. But the, the truth is we don't have many answers here. We know that, these, that, that they were idols or figurines and that they were intended to represent the gods of Laban and his household. But we don't even really know why she stole them. The text doesn't tell us. She may have stole them for good fortune, perhaps help with fertility, uh, maybe for material value. They, they were probably made out of costly substances, or perhaps it would give her some sort of legal claim, property or rights of Laban. We, we don't know. The text says they flee, cro- they cross the Euphrates River with their faces set toward the promised land. And that's when we learn about the pursuit. Look at verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. This is all part of the chase scene. Appears that it took, takes three days for Laban to find out what happened. Then he gets his men together, and they chase hard after Jacob and his family, and it takes them seven more days to overtake them. Now, uh, for some reason, when I was studying this part of the passage this week, I couldn't help but think of uh, old math problems, you know, that used to have an algebra. You know, I thought of some of the math teachers kind of salivating when reading through the text here. If Jacob left three days earlier and it took Laban seven more days to catch him, how much faster was Laban moving than Jacob? <laughs> I know some of you are thinking that way, math teachers. Well, uh, by the way, I don't have the answer to that question. Uh, But there is one thing I want to point out in this passage that I think is more important. In the last night before Laban catches Jacob, God warns Laban strongly. He says, do not say anything to him. Do you read that? Good or bad, don't say anything. That's a strong warning. Not only is he not supposed to touch him, he's not supposed to say anything. We'll learn in just a few moments whether the old foolish man obeys or not. But before we do that, I want to just pause and consider how how much grace this vision is for Jacob. God comes to help Jacob right in the middle of his mess. Jacob is good at making relational messes everywhere he goes. His father doesn't like him. His brother wants to kill him. His wives are using him. And his uncle is ready to take him out. Yet God comes right in the middle of his mess and he delivers him again. Moment of application for us today, I just say, how gracious, how kind, 
kind of God. How deserving of all of our praise he is. For he does these same things for us time and time again. This morning I had a very sweet time on my knees in prayer where I just started recalling all of the different messes in my life that God has come into to deliver me from. And it didn't take me very long to think about all of those things. I remember times in my early childhood. I said something or did something really stupid. And then God came. In his grace, in his kindness, he used someone to encourage me, to strengthen me, point me in the right direction. I remember times in my college years. This morning I recalled times when I was a professor where things were a mess and my good God came and he loved me and he cared for me and he delivered me from the mess. And I remember times as a pastor. That's not hard to remember either. Times as a pastor where God came right in the middle of my mess and he loved me and he delivered me. Perhaps you're here today and you find yourself in a mess that you've created or a mess that someone else has created for you. Go on your knees to God. Pray for grace and mercy and deliverance and humility and joy and help. This is what God does. He meets us in our messes. Well, this is part two of the Jacob story. I call it the chase. And it leads to the confrontation. That's part three, the confrontation. The confrontation includes a bold accusation, a thorough search, and a scathing defense. We'll start with Laban's bold accusation. Look at verse 25. And as we read through this, it's hard for me not to add drama to this. So I'm going to try to keep it down. But I can just imagine Laban as he accuses Jacob here. Look at verse 25. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. Verse 26. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Ah, oh, Jacob, why did you flee sacredly, secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I may have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourines and lyre? And Jacob, why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you've gone away because you've longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? We'll stop there. Did Laban listen? Can't keep his mouth shut. Laban overtakes him, and he has his opportunity. So we'll see what's on his heart here, what's important to him. A few things stick out to me. First, Laban starts by asking a familiar question in Genesis. What have you done? This is the question that people ask in Genesis when they've been sinned against. What have you done? He then lists out his charges. He, he first asks, 
why Jacob's taken away his daughters as one would captives of battle, suggesting it was against their will. This just demonstrates that Laban is completely aloof as to the real condition of his relationship with his daughters. They went willingly. He then asked why Jacob did this secretly, preventing him from throwing a farewell celebration and from kissing his daughters and grandchildren. And finally, he makes one last charge near the end, and this is an important charge for you to see. He says, why did you steal my family gods, my household gods? And so Jacob feels compelled to answer and to allow a thorough search for the gods. And this starts in verse 31. Look there. Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live in the presence of your kinsmen. Point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let, my Lord, uh, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. Here Jacob responds impetuously and emphatically to Laban's accusations. And he's so impulsive here in his response, he actually puts the life of his favorite wife, Rachel, in jeopardy. He says, anyone have your gods, you can kill them. Yet Moses, I think, just tells us in a masterful way. The story is just laid out just in an amazing way. As we read, we kind of follow Laban throughout the tents of each person. He goes into Jacob's tent. There's nothing there. He goes into Leah's tent. Nothing there. Then he goes into the two female servants' tents. Nothing there. But then he comes to Rachel's. That's when Rachel concocts an excuse for why she can't rise to greet Laban at her tent. And his search there is unsuccessful as well. Rachel claims that she's so ill that she cannot rise but what is actually happening here in the text is that she's sitting on Laban's idols. Her actions not only accomplish hiding her theft, they also result in, and then all the commentaries point this out, uh, her actions result in the ceremonial defiling of Laban's gods. I'm not going to explain everything here, but I really like how one commentator described it. He, he asked this, he says, what kind of God allows himself to be desecrated like this? Only a God who is no God. That's right. This is no God. This is a small statue, a figurine with no spiritual power that fits in the saddle of a camel. But having said that, I want to keep our eyes on what happens with the search. Laban goes through every tent and he finds nothing. That emboldens Jacob. So that he finally decides to give Laban a little piece of his mind. Let's look at his scathing defense in verse 36. 
Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods, and, you, and, and uh, what have you found of all your household goods? See it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I've not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. For my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and the sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I've been in your house, I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times." If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. What a scathing defense he gives here. You don't have to read too far to know, you know what sort of mood he's in. He's not afraid anymore. He's angry. He's very angry. And he, un he unleashes 20 years of anger against Laban. He perhaps had said some of these things behind Laban's back before, but now he says it right to his face. If you notice in the text, he repeats what he told Rachel and Leah in the field privately in verse 7. He changed my wages 10 times. Now he tells it right to his face. Verse 41. Yet through it all, he recognizes God has been protecting and providing for him. Jacob calls his God in this text, the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and then he, he attaches a title to God that I think is important to consider for a moment. He calls him the fear of Isaac. In some Bibles, that phrase, fear of Isaac, will be capitalized. That's because I think it's another name for God. That last title could literally be translated, the awesome one of Isaac. The one who inspired Isaac, his father. That God has remained with him throughout his time with Laban. That's the confrontation. And it leads to the fourth and final part, the covenant. Number four, the covenant. Let's see how things end here. Look at verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. <coughs> and they took and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, which in Aramaic means mound of stones. But Jacob called it Galid, which in Hebrew means mound of stones. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me 
when we're out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I've set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I may not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, or the awesome one of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his grandchildren and his daughters, and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Here Laban starts with a question about what he can do for his grandchildren and daughters in this wilderness so far away from home. And then he suggests a solution, a peace treaty, a covenant between them that they will commit not to harm one another. I'd point out just a few things about this final paragraph that I think are interesting or helpful. First, Laban forbids Jacob from taking other wives other than his daughters in marriage, in verse 50. It's an interesting request. Um, It seems as if he's trying to save face a little bit to me here. Or he's trying to portray, portray himself as a protective father. But that kind of falls really flat when you think about his plan to marry off both of his daughters to Jacob. I don't know that we should really feel too bad for him. At the beginning of this text, he kind of laments or mourns that he can't really do much for them out in the field. I, I take that as like, you know, the modern day equivalent to a father regretting, in quotation marks, that he couldn't have spent more money on his daughter's wedding because some sort of circumstances. You know, maybe it was a COVID wedding, so they can only have, you know, 25 people at the reception. Oh, I really wish, you know. My heart would be to spend a lot more on this, but I guess we'll just do what we're going to do. Second, Laban calls on a plurality of gods as a witness here. In verse 53, I think he's calling on a plurality of gods, and we can know this because the verb that he uses is plural. So you could understand part of verse 53 is like this. He says, may they, the gods, plural, judge between us. More specifically, he says, the God of Abraham, that's Yahweh, the God of Nahor and the God of their father. I think it's best to translate this like the Christian Standard Bible does, where they take the phrase, the God of Nahor and the God of their fathers, as the gods, small g, the gods of Nahor and the gods of their father. Laban is a pluralist. He believes in a multitude of different gods. Not Jacob. Jacob believes there's one God, Yahweh. But finally, I just would point out, everything seems to close here peacefully with Laban leaving early in the morning after a covenant celebration. Once again, God meets Jacob in his mess. And he works for him in grace in ways that defy any kind of human merit. 
Men and women, this is our God. This is what God does for each one of us through His Son, Jesus Christ. He meets us in our mess and He brings us provision, protection, forgiveness, and grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and rejoice in our great God. Father, as we come today, I first want to thank you for all of those things that I rejoiced in this morning in my study. All the ways and all the times that you chose to come and help me in my mess. And I thank you, Father, for my brothers and sisters here for how you've been near them, how you've helped them in the middle of their own relational challenges and struggles, and how you've been near to them and gracious with them, and how you could do that because of the all-sufficient sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, for our sins. And Lord, I couldn't help but think of perhaps some of our guests who are here today who find themselves in the middle of a mess, searching for help and for hope, searching for an answer as to even why they exist, perhaps. And I would pray, dear Father, that our guests today would understand that you love them so much you sent your only begotten Son to not only die on a cross in their place, but to be raised by the power of God to provide salvation for them. And so, Father, if there are some here today who have never believed in the name of Jesus Christ, and his work on the cross, and your work in his resurrection, I pray that they would believe that message today and turn from their sin so that they might find that in the middle of their mess, there is a God who loves them and who is present and who will stand with them and care for them like you have for us. We thank you for this, Lord. And we pray that you would do that work in hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.